I'm guessing this message is really for somebody because we have had more technical trouble today than we've probably had in a year. <clears throat> so something's trying to stop it from happening. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> let me start out by saying that if you have for your whole life had perfectly working eyesight, then it's almost impossible for us to, to sort of understand what being colorblind must be like. Now, you could watch black and white television, I guess, and that sort of gives you some sense, but that's just watching other things that really is not in any way impactful of, of what your life would be like if you couldn't see color. Um, now, we, we lived, um, before we moved up to Ashland, we lived in Short Pump in uh, a neighborhood there. And we had a neighbor who lived right across the street from us who was colorblind. And so he was the guy that we would go to whenever we wanted to paint our house. <laughs> because the neighborhood association always demanded that we get approval from our neighbors <laughs> of what colors we were going to be painting the house, right? And so... Um, we would go and get Mark to sign off. So we, we were such rebels, weren't we? <laughs> there we were, sticking it to the man by getting a colorblind guy to approve our paint choices. We were bad. But you know, when you kind of stop and think about it, for people who are colorblind, life really isn't funny. You know, it involves... All, all these kinds of little workarounds, you know, for example, well, there, there's just so many differences that a colorblind person can't really see. Uh, a daily challenge could range from, you know, not knowing whether meat was fully cooked or not being able to read like a horizontal traffic light to know what color was showing. And then it gets even more serious, you know, for example, Suppose someone had the dream job of wanting to be a pilot. And you couldn't do that because if you can't read the colors of the landing strip lights, you can't fly a plane. And there are certainly other things that it would, it would limit you uh, from as well. But there's some good news because in the last few years, uh, there's been a number of companies. One of them is called Enchroma. And they have been helping colorblind people see for the very first time. Today, so. 
Isn't that awesome? How wonderful for a father to be able to see the color of his kid's eyes for the very first time. And I would suggest for you today that for Christians, this ought to be an image of how we see the world. You see, when we come to Christ, we ought to see the entire world differently. The way that we interact with people should change. The way that we view ourselves and the way that we view others should change. The way that you live your life should be a difference that somebody else can see. And I would summarize all this really with the phrase that your behavior and your relationships should reflect your life in Christ. And so operating with that statement as a premise, the question on our table, therefore, is really how? How can my behavior and how can my relationships reflect my life in Christ? <coughs> in a moment, we're going to read from Colossians chapter 3. And from that passage, we're going to see <coughs> how you can do that. But as a preview, I think you can summarize this text in three main points. Raise up, look up, and dress look up and dress up. Raise up, look up and dress up. <clears throat> so let's look at Colossians three, chapter three, verses one through seventeen. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. 
And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So point one out of this was raise up. And so the first phrase of verse one really states, if then, if then, you have been raised with Christ. Well, what you ought to immediately notice is that that's a conditional statement. If, right? And the background for this is that something is going sideways in this church that Paul's writing to, right? The church in Colossae. Now, there's a lot of theories as far as what that was. No one really knows for sure. Um, but whatever was happening, and, and some, some people believe that it was some form of Gnosticism or you know, extra knowledge that they were professing that you had to have, um, which you know, tends, that whole concept okay, tends to favor um, knowledge over faith, right? But whatever the issue was, thank you, Andre. Um, it was pulling the believers there away from Jesus. It was away from what Paul had taught them before. And now these, they were new teachers that were coming through and somehow or another they were changing the story. And some of the people there were obviously starting to fall for it and, and deciding that whatever this new teaching was, was the way they should go. So Paul's writing them a letter to correct this. And early on in this letter, he's challenging the Colossians, as to where they stood in their faith. And that challenge really still stands for us today. Because Paul's asking us as well, have you been raised in Christ? What does that mean? Well, the whole idea behind our first point, raise up, is a way of describing how we put our faith in Jesus whose resurrection we celebrate today. And if you're somewhat unsure as to what that might look like, one of the best ways that I have found to explain it is called the Romans Road. And it's called that because all of the verses that explain this come from another one of Paul's letters, the book of Romans. And so... The idea of being raised up with Jesus or believing in Jesus can really be summarized in five verses from this gospel. And the first is from Romans chapter 323, and it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. And the first step is admitting that. Admitting that we have done things that are not pleasing to God. Scripture tells us in other places that there's no one who is, not, who is innocent of this, except Jesus. So 
So step one is really acknowledging the fact that we have done things in our lives. may have been long ago, but those things are there. And step one is really acknowledging them. Then we go on to the second step, which is the first part of Romans 6.23, and it says, for the wages of sin is death. Well, this is the consequence, right? We've sinned. We are now separated from God the Father. And the only solution is eternal punishment. And that's not a physical death, it's an eternal death. Because we're all going to physically die, right? Some of you believe you're not. <laughs> Can we talk later? I'd like to know what supplements you're taking. <laughs> no, we're, we're all going to die physically. This is an eternal death that's being discussed here. And that's the punishment for the sins, because we can no longer have fellowship with God because of this barrier that we've put in place because of our sin. But the good news comes in the second half of that verse, which says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And in another place in Romans, it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. That's the glory of this day. That's what we celebrate. Because on Friday, it could have been any one of us. In fact, I just ran across a cartoon. Um, do you remember BC? I think it was Johnny Hart was the, uh, the drew the strip. And it shows one of the cavemen sitting on the edge of a, a cliff and um, he said, uh, I just hate that they call this day Good Friday. And the other caveman who walks up uh, says, why? And the first one says, well, it just doesn't seem right that uh, this was the day that they killed my Lord. Because it should be called good. And so the, the other caveman says, so how do you feel by the fact that Jesus died in your place. And he says, well, I feel good. <laughs> and so the second caveman says, well, have a nice day. <laughs> and I thought that was just so poignant and so perfect you know, for the day. But that's what we celebrate here is that you know, Christ died for us. Jesus paid the price that was due because of the sin that we had committed. And Jesus' resurrection proves that God accepted it. He accepted that as payment. Fourth stop is Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth, see, I told you we were having technical issues that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because of what happened, all we have to do is believe in him and trust 
that the price that he paid, the payment that he made, applies to us. And so salvation, which is forgiveness of sins, is available to anybody who simply trusts that Jesus is Lord. And then finally, we have Romans 5.1 that says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's through this relationship with Jesus that we have this relationship of peace with God. Romans 8.1 also says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we will never, never, repeat, never be condemned of our sins. A lot of people forget that. And then finally, there's this wonderful promise that Paul includes in Romans 8, 38 and 9. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, if you have made those five stops along Romans Road, believing that you have done things that are displeasing to God, believing that Jesus took your punishment, for, well, oh, I got lost. Believing that by doing the things that are displeasing to God, you are deserving of punishment then believing that Jesus took that punishment for you, confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that he was raised from the dead, and believing that you now have a relationship with God, and not just any God, a God who loves you beyond words, beyond measure. If that describes the condition of your mind and of your heart, then you have been raised up. And the cool thing is that traveling this particular road is what frees us from all of the religious systems of the world. Now, that might sound like an odd statement. But see, the distinctive mark of the Christian faith is, not, is that it's not a religion at all. Surprise, shock. It's not a human system linked to earthly sanctuaries or regulations or rights. It has no essential center of authority in this world. Sorry, Pope. For its center is the heavenly Christ. And it's not an exercise in interior spirituality or mysticism or some kind of visionary enthusiasm. Set free from all of that. The Christian is simply a man or a woman who have been granted a relationship with Jesus who now sits at God's right hand. And that's the relationship that he or she is supposed to vigorously pursue and develop by seeking things that are above, not below. Which brings us to look up. Look up is a way of remembering that once you raise up, 
Believers are exhorted to set their minds on things that are above, not things that are below. Now, Paul expands the thought here by including the negative contrast of not on earthly things. And so this doesn't mean that as believers we're supposed to live in sort of this mystical fog or, you know, somehow neglect the affairs of the earth. You know, well, I don't have to pay my bills. I'm (laughs) Jesus. That'd be great, but that's not the way it works. The point is that we're not to be concerned only with the trivial things of this life. We're supposed to be preoccupied with the things that get top billing in heaven. Heavenly values are supposed to capture our imaginations, our emotions, our thoughts, our feelings, our ideas, and our actions. The believer is supposed to see everything against that backdrop of eternity. To have a resurrection perspective on life. And so in telling believers to put to death certain behaviors, Paul is calling for a complete extermination, not a careful regulation. Let me say that again. Paul's calling for a complete extermination, not a careful regulation. Why does he say that? Well, he says that because these behaviors and attitudes reflect the way that you once lived. And if you have a transformed kingdom-based mindset and lifestyle, that's what should be the trademark of your new life. I'm going to give you an example one that we're not particularly proud to say, but, you know, this is, we, we, we um, pride ourselves in being real here, right? You can be real in this church, and that means all your junk. I don't mean that. Well, never mind. <laughs> not even going to try to get out of that hole. I'll just stay there. <laughs> Now, I have to kind of preface this by saying that, that and many of you know that my wife, Sally, has a very demanding job. And it, it causes her to have to be focused, you know, eight to ten hours a day pretty intently. Um, you know, she manages a team of over 100 people. She has to meet with employees. She have to, has to be on calls with the customer. And, I mean, all the time, it's not just I can just kind of be on the phone and listen. I've got to sort of pay attention to what's going on, because someone might say something that could bite me later if I'm not really, you know, paying attention to it. And there are a lot of days when she doesn't even get to go out for lunch. You know, she has lunch brought in, she eats at her desk while she's listening to more conversation. And so by the time she gets home, all she wants to do is is anything that doesn't require much thought or concentration, (laughs) okay? And so... In the evenings, we like to relax, and we typically watch TV. And we particularly enjoy finding, you know, TV series that maybe we haven't seen that's been showed somewhere, or, you know, just one that we never paid attention to. Because uh, then you can get them. They don't have any commercials in them, and you can kind of watch, you know, several in a row, and uh, you don't have to wait for next week. Well, 
couple of years ago, because of the reviews, we started watching The Sopranos. Got real quiet in here, didn't it? <laughs> if you don't know, it's a series about the mob in New Jersey. And, um, you know, the show was well done and it had won a lot of awards. But after a number of episodes, during which time I think we were both kind of rationalizing about the extremes that were present in the show, Sally looked at me and she said, we shouldn't be watching this. And I had to agree she was right. Because the coarse nature of the show was bound to affect us somehow. And so in that one area of our lives, we had stopped looking up. So in urging them to be heavenly minded, Paul's not suggesting, as I said before, that Christians are to just kind of live in the clouds and not worry about anything else. What he's saying is, is that when we set our minds on the things above, it's going to result in a believer who not only is heavenly minded, but is also of maximum earthly good. Third point here is dress up. Now dress up refers to the latter part of, of this block of text where Paul is talking about how believers are supposed to discard the repulsive habits that they have, sort of like a worn out set of clothes. We're to then put on the kind of behaviors that will make us well-dressed and appropriately fashionable. Now as God's chosen people who have already put on the new person, saying the Colossians must clothe, them, clothe themselves with the graces which show them to be different. A difference you can see. And so all of the virtues that Paul encouraged in the believers at Colossae, the one that would perfectly bind them together is this virtue of love. And so as they clothed themselves, the last one that they were to put on was love. It's kind of like a belt. It holds all of the other clothes in place. It literally means the bond of perfection. And so love pulls all of these other graces together in sort of a perfect, unified action. And in any congregation, we have to have love because it's the only thing that will unify people and will build them up. And so anyone who desires to live a life as a mature Christian has got to, put, to make love a top priority. That's what we try to do. We put the verse on our wall as a way to remind ourselves this is what we're all about. That all the rest of these things only make sense if love is present. And so... Raise up, look up, dress up is a concise and compact way for us to remember what Paul is saying in, in this part of the letter. 
But I find often that is the case that the testimony of someone who has actually walked it out is the most powerful way to really make a case for something. Now, about one year ago, a documentary was released called The Dropbox. Did anyone see The Dropbox? That's too bad. Um, it's, I don't, I've not been aware of it for very long. But The Dropbox tells the story of South Korean pastor Lee Young Rock and his heroic efforts to embrace and protect the most vulnerable members of society. It's an exploration of the physical, the emotional, and the financial toll that's associated with providing refuge to orphans that would otherwise be abandoned in the streets. What he did, because he, he found there's a... Um, there's an attitude of perfectionism that is present in South Korea and that any child that is not perfect, in other words, that has a deformity of some kind or disability, um, is essentially abandoned. And this pastor has made it his life's work to rescue these children to the point that he built a Dropbox in his house, in the side of the house in his laundry room he built this box that opens from the outside and the inside. And so that way a mother can come, place the child in the drop box. There's a motion, there's a sensor underneath so that when the child is laid in the box, an alarm goes off in their bedroom. And so he then comes down immediately and they take the child in. Well, what you're about to see is an interview with the director of that movie, a young man named Brian Ivey. I want you to pay attention to what he says. I think the part of his testimony that stood out the most for me was when he said <clears throat> that we're all just like those deformed kids, broken children, except our brokenness and our deformities on the inside, not on the outside. So I would ask you today on this day of all days that we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. That if Brian's story resonates with you in some way and you've decided that uh, today you want what he found and what many seated here have found, then all you have to do is Follow along in your head. You don't have to say anything out loud, but just follow along in your head as I pray this prayer. So let's close our eyes. Dear Father, I now believe that Jesus Christ is your only begotten Son, <clears throat> that he came down to our earth in flesh and died on the cross to take away all of my sins and the sins of the entire world. <clears throat> I believe that Jesus Christ then rose from the dead on the third day to give all of us <clears throat> eternal life. Lord Jesus, I now confess to you all of the wrong and sinful things that I have ever done in my life. I ask that you please forgive me and wash away 
all of my sins by the blood that you have shed for me on the cross. I am now ready to accept you as my Lord and Savior. I now ask that you come into my life and live with me for all eternity. Father Jesus, I now believe that I am truly saved and born again. Thank you, Father God. And thank you, Jesus. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer today, I would really like it if you would get one of our connection cards and just put your name and a little note that you prayed that prayer. We would love to uh, send you a gift just to uh, bless you after, uh, after doing that. I thank you for each one of your people here. Lord, I just pray that you would bless them all, that you would use them in some way uh, during this week ahead uh, for your glory. So just bless all of them uh, with provision in all that they do. We thank you for them and uh, just pray that you would keep them safe until we have the chance to be together once again. So we give you all the praise and honor and glory in all things. We ask this now in the name of Jesus. God's people said, Amen. Happy Easter and have a great day.